So if you have your Bible, um, Isaiah chapter 40, I would like to give you a brief um, summary of this chapter, and then I would like you to turn to John chapter 1, the gospel according to John chapter 1. But first of all, Isaiah chapter 40. The title of my message today is Behold Your God in the Face of Jesus Christ. Behold Your God in the Face of Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is a a chapter in the book of, of Isaiah that is, it really divides the book. Isaiah chapter 40. This chapter really divides the book of Isaiah. Now, many people struggle in uh, reading the book of Isaiah because it's a book that has a mixture of you know, chapters about judgment, salvation, sin, holiness. And so chapter 40 is one of those chapters that really divides the book into two parts. The first 39 chapters pretty much dealing with judgment and sin and God calling upon the people of God to turn away from their sins, turn away from their rebellion, turn away from their disobedience, or else judgment will come. And as you get to chapter 40, the first two words is, uh, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, as you can see. And why comfort ye, why comfort ye? Well, if you know your Old Testament, I don't presume that the people of God today know really well their Old Testament. But just in case you do not know your Old Testament, remember remember that God did warn the people of God of Israel that if they continue in their sins, he will raise up a Gentile nation and this Gentile nation will destroy them. In Second Chronicles, I will read that for you. If you like to make references, uh, that's a good reference. Second Chronicles chapter 36. And beginning in verse 14, the word of God says, Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgress very much after all the abominations of the heathens and polluted the house of the Lord which had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So God is saying, I had compassion on my people. Therefore, I sent messengers and prophets in their midst. But they mocked, verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up them the king of the Chaldees who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion upon young men or maiden, old men or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hands. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king, and all his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. So God raised up the Babylonians, 
and the Babylonians took away the Jews, the princes. Do you remember Daniel and his three friends? That includes them as well. And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burn all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. And so here you have the people of Israel perpetually disobeying God until there was no remedy. In other words, until mercy had run out. And that should say something to us, that God's compassion sometimes runs out. He warns us and warns us and warns us. He sends messengers. He sends prophets. And these prophets, they speak the word of God, but we don't listen. And so God's compassion runs out. And that's what happened to the people of Israel. And so God raised up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they came and took the people of God for 70 years in captivity. 70 years in Babylon. Now, that's like, I like to give this picture to people, that's like 70 years of lockdown. You know, we've been, we've been in a lockdown, haven't we? And many of us perhaps have not been to church for several months. Can you imagine 70 years not being in church, 70 years not being in a place of worship, 70 years not being amongst the people of God. And that was really the state of the people of Israel during the Babylonian captivity. 70 years not being in Jerusalem. The house of God was destroyed. They could not bring sacrifices. They could not pray. In fact, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 137, you can reference that if you want. In Psalm 137, we read the following. It's really the state of the people. And, and here's what we read in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. There they were in Babylon and they sat down and they were weeping. Because they were remembering Zion. They were remembering the land where they came from. It's like, it's like today the people of God, unable to be at church, unable, and, and they're just at home and they're weeping because they cannot be amongst the people of God. And it goes on to say, We hang our harp upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required us a song and they that wasted us required of us myrrh saying sing us one of the songs of zion and the people replied how shall we sing the lord's song in a strange land how can we sing a song of zion when we are in a strange land how can we sing a hymn when we are not in our place of worship so that was the state of the people. They were helpless there in Babylon. They were insecure. They were despondent. You know, there, there was a sense of abandonment. You know, I, I have spoken to a lot of people during the spirit of the lockdown that we've had. And, and perhaps some of you may have felt that way. 
perhaps a sense of loneliness came upon you, perhaps a bit of helplessness and insecurity, perhaps you were overcome by circumstances around you as we've been through this pandemic. And perhaps you forgot a little bit about the God that you worship. That was the case for the people of Israel. Forgetting God as a result of being depressed and despondent and being overcome by their circumstances. They were in this phase of forgetting God. They were in great need of comfort. Perhaps you're here today and you're in great need of comfort and consolation. And that's where Isaiah chapter 40 comes. It is against the backdrop of the state, their captivity in Babylon, that Isaiah chapter 40 cries out, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. In other words, bring comfort to my people. And by the way, it is God himself that brought the people into captivity. That was because of their, dis that was their discipline. God disciplined his people. God did tell them, if you persist in your sin, I will raise up a people. I will raise up a Gentile nation. And this nation is going to take you captive for 70 years. And after 70 years in captivity, I will take you back into the land. And this is exactly what happened. After 70 years, God raised up two leaders, Zerubbabel and Haggai and Joshua. And they were able to take the people back into their land. But comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Look in verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 40. Speak ye comfortably or gently to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, say to Jerusalem, the period of discipline is over now. Bring her comfort. Bring her comfort. The period of discipline is over. Now, some of you, perhaps, your parents here, and you know, you give your you, you discipline your children for a period of time, and after you've disciplined them, you bring comfort. You bring consolation. You know, they've received what they deserved. In the same way, the people of Israel, they have received from God what they deserve. They have received double for all their sins. But now it was time to, you might say, heal the wounds. To heal the wounds. And how is God now going to heal the wounds of the people of Israel? And the key is found in verse 9. Look in verse 9. O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God. In your state of despondency, in your state of depression, in the state that you are in, in your helplessness, 
in your insecurities, in your wounds. Behold your God. This is exactly what these people needed to hear. They needed to hear, Behold your God. Israel, you need to behold your God. I know the spirit of discipline has been difficult for you, but now behold your God. Now remember, they've been in captivity for 70 years and they've been around idols for all these 70 years. And very likely, they have forgotten the true God, the character of the true God. And so now, at the end of the spirit of discipline, behold your God. And perhaps that's what some of you need to hear today. You need to behold your God. Behold Yahweh. Behold your Creator. Behold the one that created you. And that is, as it were, God's way of counseling His people to get them back on track. To behold their God. Behold your God. And as you continue reading chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 42 onwards, their God says to the people, This is the kind of God that I am. I am incomparable. I hold the whole world in my hands. I am the potter. I am not an idol that is made with hands. Continually, as you read chapter 40, 41, 42, you see the attributes of God on display in the book of Isaiah. And that is to comfort the people. That is to comfort them. Now, why... Take you, take you to Isaiah chapter 40. Well, the reason is because I really believe that the church today, the church of Jesus Christ, has been in a captivity. And I like to call it the secular captivity of the church. The church has been in captivity for such a long time, captive to the culture around us, captive by vain ideas and vain philosophies in this nation. The church has been in captivity by even secular leaders. You know, we've been governed not really by the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. The church has been captive by secularity, by even a secular government. We have forgotten who the head of the church is. We have forgotten who the Lord of the church is. We have forgotten who our God is. And just as the people of Israel were in need of beholding their God in order to be comforted, likewise, you and I also need to behold our God. But because we are New Testament believers, we can behold our God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can behold God in the face of Jesus Christ. The secular captivity of the church. And as a result of that, I would like you to turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. The greatest need of the church today is for her to behold her God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the greatest need of the church today, to behold her God in the face of Jesus Christ today. And that is, I believe, your greatest need, to behold Jesus Christ. 
So John chapter 1. The Gospel according to John chapter 1. And what I would like to do in, in a few minutes is look at some of the attributes that are found in chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John, mainly from verse 1 to verse 7. Let's read it together. The Gospel according to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Let's continue reading. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, preferred before, sorry, verse, verse 9, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's, let's, let's stop here. There in chapter 1 of the Gospel according to John, we're going to behold our God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. It's very interesting in, in verse 18, if you look in verse 18, we read, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Christ, Jesus Christ, has put on display the true God. And when you and I look to Christ, when you and I look at Christ, there we are seeing God. I was at a camp last week, a children's camp in Droitwich, not far from Birmingham, for children. I'll be there again tomorrow, another week of camp for adult, for uh, teenagers. And during the camp, a little girl came up to me and said, I, she's been to Sunday school for a very long time, but she said to me, I, I want to know who God is. What a great question. Now, I could, have, I could have said to her, well, let me give you the, uh, the, some philosophical arguments for the ex existence of God. You know, the cosmological argument and all these arguments with regards to the existence of God. But I didn't do that. I said to her that if you want to know God, look in the Bible. Look to Christ. Because those who see Christ who have seen Christ, they have also seen the Father. When you are beholding Christ, 
There you are beholding God face to face. And Jesus Christ is the only one that has seen God. And he has made him known to you and I. And that's very important for you to understand. For us as believers, there is nothing that we must behold except Jesus Christ. To behold means to gaze upon. To behold means to look, look intently at something or someone. And when when you're beholding something or someone, you are gradually changing and changing and becoming into that very thing that you are beholding. Let me, let me give you an example of that. Children. You know, children, they, they like their cartoons. And, you know, when a movie comes out, for example, you know, let's say Iron Man comes out, and there you have this little boy beholding Iron Man, constantly looking at Iron Man. And all of a sudden, the parents have to buy them an Iron Man costume because they have beheld Iron Man, and all of a sudden, they want to become like Iron Man. Or a little girl who has watched the the cartoon Frozen. And all of a sudden she wants to become a princess. And wear a a dress. Because she has beheld this cartoon character. This princess. And all of a sudden she wants to be that. But we as Christians we're we're called upon to behold Jesus Christ. And when we behold Jesus Christ... We shall become gradually, gradually, incrementally into his very image. That's very important for you to understand. This is the, what we call the dynamics of sanctification. This is how sanctification works. This is how you grow in godliness. If you want, if you want your home to be a sanctifying place, if you want your house to be a place where there is sanctifying instrument, You, especially you fathers and husbands, you must be beholding Christ continually. Because when you are beholding Christ, you are gradually being conforming to his very image. And as you are being conforming to his very image, there you have a sanctifying influence amongst the people, your children and your own wife. That is very important for you to understand. Even in the church, It is so important for all of us to be beholding Christ continually so that we might have a sanctifying influence amongst the That's why I say we need to be to behold our God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we can't behold God in the face of Jesus Christ if we have a wrong view of Christ. And that's why I wanted you to turn to John chapter 1. Because in John chapter 1, there are certain things that we see concerning Christ that you and I must understand. Now, it was, you know, I was told to preach, I was told to preach uh, yesterday. And so I came back from uh, the camp yesterday, and I was told to preach the word of God here this morning. And I thank the Lord for that because last week I was really immersed in the gospel according to John chapter 1, and really beholding the glory of Christ in this chapter. And, uh, and, and that's why I'm so glad to be here, because I really believe this is what you need to hear from God. And there we see in John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and sorry, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. So in order to bring comfort and consolation to you, I want you to behold God in the face of Christ, in that Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, was eternal. This is what we see there. In the beginning was the Word. There we see the eternality of Jesus Christ. The eternality of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It simply means this. Jesus Christ was always there. He never had a beginning. This Jesus that you and I worship, this Jesus that you and I serve, never had a beginning. He was always there. It says, in the beginning was the word. In fact, that word was, this is very important, that, word, that verb was, in, in the original language, in the Greek, it's actually a timeless word, a timeless verb, which means it has no beginning, no end. It's in, the, it's in the imperfect tense, which means there is no stop. He was always there. Jesus Christ was always there. He is eternal. In John chapter 8, as you are in the gospel according to John, look in John chapter 8. Jesus Christ himself makes this claim. Look in verse 51. There he is dealing with the, uh, the Pharisees. And in verse 51, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste death. Are thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? In other words, Jesus, who do you think you are? That's what they are saying to Jesus. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Abraham is dead and the prophets are dead. Who do you think you are? In saying that these people are not going to see death if they believe in you. Verse 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham, this is very important, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do to Jesus? Then they took, then took they up stones to cast at him. What was Jesus basically saying here? I am God. I am eternal. Before Abraham was, I am. And by the way, remember that name, I am? God said in, in the book of Exodus, I am that I am. God's name, I am that I am. And here in the Gospel according to John, John writes at the beginning, in the beginning 
was the word. In the beginning was the word. And you know, that harkens you back to Genesis, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But here, more specifically, John is making the claim that Jesus Christ is eternal. He is eternal. Not only that, we read, and the word was with God. That is, this word, this logos, this word, Jesus Christ, referring to Jesus Christ, this word was with God. There you see how Jesus Christ is co-equal, co-equal with God. Remember Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That's in John chapter 10. Look in chapter 10 quickly with me. John chapter 10, verse 24. Jesus says, well, we're reading verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long doth thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And again, what did they do? Then they, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Do you see that? There we have John again putting on display, showing us, not only the eternality of God, of Christ, not only that Christ was before creation, He was always there, but also that He and the Father are one. They are one in their essence, in their nature, they are one. Despite the fact that they have different function, the Father did not come down to die on the cross. It is the second person, Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross. And yet, there is an equality there. Before the foundation of the world, I love to think about the Trinity. I know it's complicated sometimes for us to, to grasp it, but when you, when you gaze your attention upon how before the foundation of the world, there was a perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there was this wonderful, glorious fellowship there. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of them co-equal, same essence, same substance. I and the Father are one. This is the Christ that you and I worship. Not only that, back to John chapter 1. And the Word was God. And the Word was God. Jesus Christ was not just man. He was God. We say He is truly God and truly man. He was not partly God and partly man. That's going into heresy. He was truly God and truly man. 
truly God and truly man. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Truly God and truly man. So there we see in John chapter 1 the eternality of God. He is the I am. He was before all things. He never had a beginning. He was simply there. We also see his co-equality with the Father. Him and the Father are one. We also see that he is truly God and truly man. And we also see in verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. Jesus Christ is the creator. Colossians chapter 1. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, very quickly. Colossians chapter 1. And there we read in verse 15. Well, let's begin in verse 14. It says, In whom, that is, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. Jesus Christ, the Creator. He is not a created being. Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is a Creator. And I want to, you know, I know there are young ones here. Remember that for the rest of your life. Jesus Christ is not just a human being. He is God. And he became flesh. I remember once teaching at a Christian union. And, and, the, and the, the adults there, the, the students, they, they were struggling to figure out how, how, can, how, can Jesus, how can Jesus be God? How can he be God? You see, the, the, they were not thinking rightly. It's not how can Jesus be God. That's not the question. The question is this. How can God become man? He is God first, and then he became man. When you think of it that way, then it makes sense. Because God is able to do whatever he wants. He can become man if he wants to. That is his prerogative. So it is God who became man. God became man. And he, this God, Jesus Christ, created all things according to Philippians chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 onwards. Let's continue on. Verse 5. Sorry, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. In him was life. So far we've seen his eternality, his co-equality with the Father. 
we have seen that he is God, fully God, fully man. He is the creator. All things were created by him and for him and through him. And now we see that in him was life. He is the possessor of life. In him was life. The reason why you're alive today is because Christ is giving you life. Your heart is beating right now because it is in Him that you live and move and have your being. In Him is life. Remember the death of Lazarus? John chapter 6, the death of Lazarus. Only Jesus Christ could say, Lazarus, come forth. Only Jesus Christ could say that. Why? Because He is the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life, the Bible says. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're not a Christian today, you are dead in your sins, and you are in desperate need to have spiritual life. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can give you life. So you must come to Him and receive life from Him. I don't know to whom I'm speaking to today. I don't know, perhaps you children here, or you adults. Jesus Christ is the one that gives us spiritual life. We're all born dead in our sins. According to the Bible, we're all dead in sin. Dead in sin. We're not drowning in sin. We are dead in our sins, and we need spiritual life. And He is the bread of life. And if you go to Christ, He will give you the bread of life. He is the possessor of life. And this life, we read, was the light of man. And that light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. This light, this life was the light of men. And this light came into the darkness, and, and the darkness was not able to overcome this light. And then we read there was a man who was sent by God whose name was John. And we know that John the Baptist, he bore witness of this light. He bore witness of this Messiah, of God who became flesh. But we know that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Let me ask you this. Perhaps one of you here today have not received Christ yet. He is God. You know, to reject Christ is to reject God. When you reject the Father, you're rejecting the Son. When you reject the Son, you reject the Father. When you reject Jesus Christ, like many of the Jews did, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting the one who created you. You're rejecting your Creator. You're rejecting the one who is sustaining you right now as you're sitting down. You're rejecting the one who is right now controlling every single heartbeat. That's the one you're rejecting. And this God, the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us.
We're not going to go further than that. But this is what you need to behold. You and I, we need to behold God in the face of Christ. We need to behold this Christ as revealed in the pages of Scripture. You know, I was, two weeks ago, I was in Staines and and a few moments stopped me and uh, and I, I spoke I spoke to them and you know I kind of pretended that I did not know much about Christianity and so that we could meet up together again and so we met again the week after and I sat down with them and we began to talk you know there was there was so much in common so many things in common as we began to talk. We agreed with each other on many things. You know, we agreed on the inerrancy of Scripture and so on and so forth. But you know, when it came to Jesus Christ, there was a strong disagreement there. Because they believed Jesus Christ was a created being. And let me say this to you. That is blasphemy. Jesus Christ is not a created being. And because of this belief that Jesus Christ is a created being, there cannot be any fellowship there. If you have a different Christ, you have a different gospel. And if you have a different gospel, the Bible says, according to Galatians chapter 1, you are accursed. It is so important for you and I to behold Christ as revealed in Scripture, to behold Christ, to behold your God in the face of Jesus Christ. He who is before all things. He who has always existed. Co-equal with the Father. Yet distinct in his function. This is the God that you and I serve. And by the way, this is the God that condescended to our level. He came down. He was in perfect fellowship. I mean, think about this. There you have Christ and the Father, you have the Son of God, you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the free person of the Trinity, perfect fellowship, perfect union, and yet, and yet, in this glorious, heavenly picture, you might say, the Son of God would take on flesh, become like you and I, take on flesh, live a life of perfect obedience, live the life that you and I cannot live and then put upon himself put upon his body your sins and endure the effects of your sins which is the wrath of God die on the cross in order to save you from the consequences of your sins God did that. He veiled himself in flesh. We sing that at Christmas, don't we? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead sees. Veiled the incarnate deity. This God, all glorious God, the potter, condescended, came down, humbled himself, became a man, became a servant, and served you and I and in the end, die on the cross in order that we might have our sins forgiven and have eternal life. So let me ask you this question. Have you believed 
in this Christ as revealed in Scripture? Or are you believing in a different Christ, in a false Christ? You want to know God? Children, you want to know God? It's in there. It's in there. Not your school teacher. It's the Word of God. You want to know Christ? Christ is revealed in the pages of Scripture. And this book is true. You know, wherever I go, I say this to people. It is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, clear Word of God. Don't let anyone take away your trust from this book. This is truly the Word of God. And in this book, God has revealed Himself. And Christ has put God on display for you and I to see. He who is the exact imprint of His nature has made God known to you and I. And as a result, you and I can behold God and be comforted and have consolation. Perhaps some of you have friends and family members who are in need of consolation. I would encourage you, take them to the gospel according to John and help them to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.